Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no popcorn. We're back with the film and music offshoot. It has been a very long time and I'm here with Dave Higgins. We're here to talk Drive. You heard a bit of Kavinsky there. Get us in the mood. How you feeling, buddy? I mean, pretty amped after that. Pretty happy. <laughs> it's a banger. It is a banger. In fairness. It, still, it still has every bit of the impact, uh, whether it's just kind of like listening to it or watching the opening scene. So, it's well, we can um, 10 years on. We can start with some trivia. I think I've said it before, but like, what film that was out the same year as this, I believe, did this song, Night Call by Kavinsky, appear in before Drive? I believe it was one of the... Was it was it the first movie that you could officially say was the beginning of the reconnaissance, The Lincoln Lawyer? You Just are correct. Just a solid, solid legal drama. You which, are correct. you know, I'm all for. A star-studded, uh, good DVD rental, which actually shares an actor. Brian Cranston is in that movie, and he's in this movie as well. Uh, an actor that generally, uh, post-Breaking Bad, if I see him on a poster, much like Benedict Cumberbatch, nah. I will I will do my best to avoid this film if I can. Just can't stand him, you know? Can't stand. Brian Cranston, I, uh, yeah, I, I just think he's a smug fucker. Uh, sorry, I should say, uh, Norma Howard is not with us on this episode, sadly. She's off making a movie. We're here to talk about movies, she makes them. That's, you know, that's the difference between me and Higgs and her. Uh, she's an actual valued member of the film industry, whereas we just crow about it. So we'll have Norma back, hopefully next time, depending on how her shoot goes. But in the meantime, we are here to talk Drive. This is No Popcorn, and it has been a number of weeks. Uh, it turned out October was a really fucking busy month. Um, I guess we'll get into the what we've been watching section. Are there any horror films in particular, Higgs, that you want to highlight from the last month gone by? Um, there are. I, I think I don't think I made it to thirty one. Uh, I think I made it about twenty six or twenty seven horror movies. I won't go into all of them. Um, just a couple of a couple of standouts. The one that kind of I guess stood out to me most was one from last year, Saint Maud. 
Um, this is a movie directed by Rose Glass, starring Morpheus Clark and Jennifer L. Um, and it's about a devout Catholic uh, carer who's looking after a terminally ill patient. Um, and they kind of they they drew up against each other. Um, the the patient is is a former dancer who clearly like had a very um, lived a good life and you know enjoys the kind of the carnal joys of life while um Morford Clark's character is is you know as I said very devout um and is kind of like appalled a little bit by her um she also feels that she has a direct line to God um and kind of interacts with God and it's it's one of those movies that's a horror movie that doesn't really have you know, a lot of big scares for the most part. It's just one of these ones that kind of makes you feel uncomfortable throughout. Um, has great atmosphere, great sense of place. It's, it's kind of just this set in this kind of unspecified English uh, coastal town that kind of reminded me of the grimness of Blackpool that I visited when I was a, a young boy playing football, and it was just like something about like the the contrast between like the sea and then like you know these like cheap amusements everywhere and gambling emporiums and um as it goes on things kind of start to unravel a bit more as you kind of get like far more insular uh with with mod and its last 10 to 15 minutes is it like it really delivers on its horror i i went into it kind of not really much of a spoiler knowing that there was a jump scare and that it was a good one and i feel you know when you're when you're putting down nearly 30 horror movies a month you kind of get used to kind of the blueprints of how uh horror movies work and how you construct a jump scare and like you know you go to see most kind of big studio movies now and you can kind of know they're very very well choreographed knowing that there was one here i was kind of you know i was kind of waiting for it and like i had my guard up and it absolutely got me just like it came out of nowhere it is an absolute banger of one um followed by just like an incredible scene and then kind of like really really amps up the the tension all the way to the end you've seen this as well Dave haven't you yeah I thought it was good I didn't think it was amazing there's also a scare because I was trying to figure out what one you were referring to there's a scare like which ushers in the very ending of the film as well which I thought was a bit too cute and kind of robbed the film of some ambiguity perhaps maybe I think it's good. I think the two central performances are excellent. Um, there's also a moment where, uh, I guess, like, to kind of show her further devotion, uh, she puts on a pair of Converse that she has laced with, like, spikes in them. And I'm like, my entire review on Letterbox was, I was like, Converse are hard enough on your feet as it is, mate. What are you doing? Um, it's good. It has serious atmosphere. It doesn't, it doesn't overstay its welcome. But I think I had seen a bit too much hype maybe going in. I think if I saw no hype, I think it was a lot better. But that's not the film's fault. That's my fault. And discourse's fault, if you will. Yeah, that's a fair one. Um, another one that was kind of a first timer for me was uh, the nineteen sixty movie Peeping Tom. Um, this was directed by Michael Powell of uh, Pressburger and Powell. Um, kind of overshadowed, I guess, when it was released because it came out the same year as Psycho, uh, and was also kind of like uh, it's, it's a British horror film, so it was a. It was the victim of a very banned this sick filth uh, backlash. It basically destroyed uh, Michael Powell's career. But um, yeah, just a really, really great movie. Great vibe, great atmosphere. Amazing performance by the lead, um, Karl-Heinz Baum. And 
Yeah, just like a, a really good idea for a movie uh, about like a, a creepy cinematographer, you know, very much playing on voyeurism and, you know, he has this, this really kind of interesting method of how he kills people where um, he he has a tripod with like kind of basically like a spear in it and his whole thing is like wanting to film people like just as they're being murdered. Um, yeah, just absolutely fantastic. Um Revisited, uh, an old favourite, and but sometimes perhaps unfairly maligned, uh, Halloween three season of the witch. Um, this is the one Halloween film that like veers massively off course. Uh, doesn't involve Michael Myers. Um, is set, um, in a kind of a coastal town in 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 California where a, a f- toy maker in a factory is basically like making masks to uh. Basically, I kill all the children in America. Um, he's also a witch, an Irish witch at that. Um, just like a really weird film, but like great, great atmosphere. It's got a Carpenter score in it as well. Uh, he was a producer and his um, one of his editors, I think it's uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, directed it. Um, yeah, just a really, really fun film. Has like a, an all-time... Were you talking recently about... Uh, um, Salt and Precinct Thirteen, like when when the girl gets killed at the start, oh, of it. like all time kid murder. Yeah. yeah, I haven't actually seen all of Halloween Three. It's one of those ones I've kind of experienced over the years. But I did. I was shown the sequence that I know you're about to refer to when I was very young. And boy, it's yeah, <laughs> Jesus, it's, it's pretty pretty terrifying. Um, but yeah, like just a a very very fun film, which seems like a weird thing to say in the context that we've just been talking about a child murder, but um. Yeah, it was it was absolutely destroyed when it came out. Uh, criticised as being anti-Irish. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, my God. But, yeah, I think th- those were the three that kind of stood out for me. I mean, I, I kind of rewatched some of the classics. Um, but well, what, what did you watch in, in Spooky yeah, Season? I'll, I'll share a few of my own. Uh, well, I mean, like, I didn't have it written down here, but I, I watched Halloween 2, uh, like the original Halloween 2, for the first time ever. I'd actually never seen it before. Um and that film, I think, is more anti-Irish because that's the one where Donald Pleasance keep referring, keeps referring to the word Samhain as Sam Hain, which, of course, I think is getting a new life on Twitter. People are like, what the fuck is this? Because it got added to Netflix recently. And he's like, oh, Sam Hain, the festival. It's like, what? Um, but that film has one of the most insane things I've ever seen in a Halloween uh, film. Maybe the most brutal kill in the entire franchise. So, for anyone, spoilers for a film from 1981 or whatever the fuck it was. Um... There's a bit early on, because like, w- one thing I, th- I think is hilarious about these Halloween movies is just how ineffectual Donald Pleasance's Dr. Loomis is, like how bad at his job he is, and how much collateral damage he causes. Uh, chief of which is, in the first Halloween, there's a moment where Jamie Lee Curtis's friends are teasing her about a boy that she fancies called Ben Tramer, and in the second Halloween film, we kind of meet Ben Tramer for, for a split second, but we don't see his face, because there's a bit where, inexplicably, um, as... Donald Pleasance is, like, roaming the streets of Haddonfield, because this film takes place immediately after the first one, which is a really good manoeuvre, I think. Um, There's a part where, like, he sees what he thinks is Michael Myers. He sees a... It's clearly a kid, but he's wearing the same costume and has the same mask, except the hair is bleach blonde. So I guess, like, the mask is, like, readily available in stores. He's wearing a boiler suit. He just happens to be wearing the exact same thing. He's clearly trick-or-treating. He's with other kids, and he's holding a fucking, you know, like, a plastic basket or something and Loomis goes he's that that's him and like runs after this kid like with his gun 
Uh, the kid then, like, freaks out, of course, runs into traffic, into an oncoming police car, which smashes him against a van. The van explodes. The kid is pinned against the van and the car and just immediately g- goes on fire. And Loomis is all like, I think that's him. I think we got him. And it's just like, later on you discover, of course, no, it actually was this Ben Tramer kid. So Loomis and the Haddonfield police are completely responsible for the ultra-violent manslaughter of this kid. And there's no consequences. Nothing. They just, like, move on with their lives. It's insane. It's actually one of the things I love about Halloween 3 is that, um, yeah, Loomis is just like a bumbling idiot, but isn't isn't played like that. It's played with, like, you know, people take this guy seriously, while in Halloween 3, the... uh, uh, Tom Atkins' character—he's like—he's he's a doctor who kind of just kind of gets in over his head. Is very much like in the Loomis vein, but is played as a bumbling idiot. Like he's like this, you know, disheveled, drunk, uh, cheating on his wife. <laughs> you know, no good dad. Um, which is like a really kind of nice contrast to to the main series. I watched um, M. Night Shyamalan's Old as well. You know, the meme film of twenty twenty one, the beach that makes you grow old. Have you seen this? No, I I do very, very much want to see it, though. It is shocking. I mean, even beyond all the already done-to-death memes, this is a completely deranged film. Uh, it's Vicky Creeps is in it, of Phantom Thread fame. Uh, my beloved Ken Leung is in there as well. You've got uh, Guy L. Garcia Bernal, I think. Um, and lots of, like, Abby Lee, Rufus Sewell. And, of course, M. Night Shyamalan gives himself a, a, a nice expository part as well, because he always does that. Um, it's it's what you think it will be, but it is stunning in terms of like some of the dialogue and the acting. I, I don't blame the actors, and they should be firing all of their agents immediately. Um, it it genuinely devolves into Neil Breen territory, that kind of you know bizarre, horrendous filmmaking. But this has like a budget, so it's well made to a degree. Um, tonally bizarrely all over the place. Um, tone deaf, crazy. Genuinely laugh out loud funny. There's one scene in the film towards the end that is actually genuinely emotional and quite well done. And I was like, that's great. The rest of this is completely fucking insane. And I don't even know... Like, It is simultaneously so bad it's good territory. And it's also kind of just like, I can't believe that they let him make this. This is just... It's, uh, it's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. I'm glad it exists, I suppose. But I will say, I rounded off my horror experience with... Um, A horror classic I'd actually never seen. One of these films that you consume via osmosis over all the years. Rosemary's Baby. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, is it acceptable to watch a Roman Polanski film in 2021? Probably not. But it is held up there as one of the great horror films, and I wanted to see it. And, yeah, it delivered. I mean, I knew, like, over the years from seeing clips and reading stuff and just YouTube essays and whatever, I knew the entire plot. I knew how it would begin and how it would end. But that didn't take away from the experience at all. Uh, I thought Mia Farrow's performance was an absolute revelation. She is incredible in this film and the ending which you know admittedly lays it on a bit maybe too thick but obviously at the time i can't even imagine what it was like at the time i'm sure it was completely counterculture and revolutionary uh, absolutely brilliant I, I haven't felt so stressed out and worried about a character for the duration of the runtime despite knowing how where it would go i just really desperately wanted the character of rosemary woodhouse to be okay and to be to be to be all right and there's moments where She's she's got one big extended scene where she's like making a phone call and she's clearly stressed out and freaking out and she's just trying to like get someone to believe her. Like this film is like you know the the ultimate gaslighting film. Uh, it's just harrowing stuff and brilliantly done and wonderfully of its time. Genuinely menacing. Uh, even when it goes full camp, it's still quite frightening. 
Um, and yeah, I just wish, I wish I could transport back in time and go to like the opening night or something in New York and just be like, what must have that felt like? I assume you've seen this film before. Yeah, and it, it, that that kind of sentiment of of, of wanting to time travel. It, yeah, whenever I kind of watch like an old horror film where um, they still have their power, but, you know, time has kind of like, you know, sanded off some of the edges of it. Um, and yeah, you'd just be like, well, what would it be like to have gone to see Psycho in 1960? What would it have liked to be gone to see like Alien, to be in, in a, you know, opening night, there's your chest buster. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a few years since I've seen Rosemary's Baby. It is remarkable. I love how kind of, even though it kind of it, it does go to places that how grounded it is and it's like there's nothing cheap about it it's very methodical um that kind of makes it so much more effective so hang on on the subject of what you just said there before we get to i know we have a new movie round up to get into now in a second but uh my father brought my mother on a date to see blue velvet back in the day in the <laughs> cinema and apparently i think this is they're in london for some reason and apparently midway through the film my mother was like having a panic attack and she was like i can't i can't do this like i i, I have to leave and he was like all right see you later and he stayed and watched the rest of it <laughs> dad <laughs> what the fuck absolutely incredible <laughs> so yeah some new stuff what have you seen lately um i went to see the last jewel which is the one of the new ridley scott movies coming out this year probably doesn't have as much hype as uh, house of gucci but nonetheless has a lot of pedigree to it. Um, unfortunately, had almost no cultural impact because it Got was going murdered. Literally by Venom by and Carnage <laughs> and Michael Myers. <laughs> Released on the same day. Bad. It was basically, basically like the, you know, everyone just like walking up and, and shanking it and then walking away. Um, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, uh, probably the best Ridley Scott movie, certainly decades. I'd have to kind of think about where we're going in in terms of how I would how would rank his movies, even though I'm not the the, the hugest fan of his. Um, I guess the big thing about this movie is it's it's reuniting uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck uh, writing the script, um, and much like Goodwill Hunting, where they brought in a seasoned pro to kind of to do work, where it's kind of it's questionable is the best stuff actually that person in Goodwill Hunting it was Akiva Goldsman. Here they brought in Nicole Holofcener, um, fantastic director uh, and writer to to work with them, um, and yeah, it's 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 a very 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 good. I don't know how this movie got made apart from like the sheer kind of force of stardom in it. It's been described as like the medieval Me Too movie. Can you uh, can you confirm or deny that? Um, yeah, very much so. Um, I don't think you can read a review of this movie without seeing uh, a reference to Rashomon. So it's basically a story told through the perspective of three people. Um, each each uh, each kind of chapter opens with a kind of a, a card saying the truth according to uh, the three the three main people involved in it, um, and the last jewel that is kind of in the title, is due to a alleged uh, rape that took place um, between Adam Driver's character and uh, Jodie Comer, who plays the wife of Matt Damon in it. Um, so you basically kind of, you have 30 to 40 minute sections where you're going through scenes again, sometimes kind of very very similar to what you've seen before but with like different subtle nuances as you're kind of being told to different people's perspective um 
it very much does makes it very clear which one is the truth um through a little kind of clever bit of uh uh signposting but yeah just like a very very strong movie um first time i've seen jody comer outside of seeing free guy which i hated um an amazing performance like real star quality here um she's very much in the background for like the first two thirds of the movie and then like the last third is just like her her section and she's phenomenal in it um driver's great kind of continues to be the most i think interesting actor to watch in hollywood just in terms of what he picks and what he brings to roles um Ben Affleck's character is absolutely remarkable. Uh, does he, he have? Plays, um, he plays a, a count, a uh, French a, count. Does he have I, a medieval soul patch going on? A, a, a blonde medieval soul patch <laughs> to go with his blonde eyebrows and uh, blonde hair. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a real big performance. I think originally he was supposed to play the driver role, but you know scheduling meant that he couldn't couldn't devote all the time to it. So he took this supporting role. Thank God, it's. He's just having so much fun. Um, he's basically just like a floundering drunkard who has orgies, sometimes with Adam Driver. Um, lots of fun in the role, even though he's obviously an abhorrent character. Um, how, is, yeah. um, how is Damon? And also, this was, of course, his famous Trapped in Ireland movie, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, he's good. He's he's kind of... he's Yeah, his character is like really unlikable uh, and kind of as a result you're kind of like oh is this a good performance like i'm just kind of you just don't like the character and don't like being around him but i guess that's to his credit that he kind of um he he kind of infuses him with this sense of just massively massively entitled uh only cares about his own pride doesn't care about anyone around him and always kinds of feels like he's doesn't get the respect that he deserves um very very good in it um a very kind of unglamorous role in that like has one of the worst screen haircuts ever i guess it's kind of appropriate for the time um but yeah no he's 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 solid as well um and then just to kind of to, to come around to, to ridley um when you do get battle scenes like i mean kind of i'd say nobody does it better particularly in that kind of era you know just the the brutality of medieval clashes the duel itself is disgusting but like so so captivating um so yeah it's a it's a big a big recommend um a kind of a half a recommend from me is the french dispatch this is the new wes anderson movie absolutely outrageous cast um it's an anthology film so it's basically like set around the french dispatch which is kind of like a a new yorker stand-in that is published in a fictional town of ennui very funny, Wes. Um, <laughs> um, run Rufal, by Bill Murray's character. Rueful shake of my head there. And they're basically putting out their last issue because Murray's character died. And it's kind of like, again, anthology. There's three three stories to it, um, all based around articles within the French Dispatch. Kind of the issue I always have with anthology films is that you always just put each section up against each other um, and be like, well, I like that, but I didn't like that. I didn't like that. It kind of seems a little counterproductive, but it's really hard not to do, uh, particularly in this where there are two highlights and one low light. Um, so in terms of the cast, you kind of have all the kind of the usual Anderson players, but he's brought in some people he's never worked with before. And 
they tend to be the leads, which kind of is interesting to see him do to work with people. Um, I've heard. So, um, sorry, I've heard Leia Sado steals this movie. Is that correct? Um, yeah. So she she's in the the first piece alongside Benito del Toro. So the two of them together, it's like you know, not two people that in your head you just imagine seeing kind of like lead a movie, even though it's you know it's it's a portion of a movie together. Um, yeah, their section is undoubtedly the strongest. Um, Benito del Toro plays a criminal who is in a jail in Ennui for beheading two people in a bar fight, uh, but he turns out to be this incredible artist uh, and his muse is also his jailer played by Leia Sadu and it's all about him kind of creating his 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 masterpiece his concrete masterpiece um you have Adrian Brody kind of playing this uh art dealer who's also like a, a white collar criminal he's having a lot of fun so it's it's really good it kind of um there's there's weight to their relationship their interactions are amazing um then you have the the third one uh, revolves around uh, Jeffrey Wright playing, basically playing James Baldwin um, and doing a bloody good job of it. And he's a kind of like a food writer who is having dinner with like the, the head of police as like a kidnapping happens. And basically they need to use this legendary police chef to to kind of get the kidnappers. It's a lot of fun. There's like some great capers in it. Um, some real kind of great pathos between uh, Jeffrey Wright's character and Stephen Park, who plays the chef. And the real downside, and maybe you'll kind of come to this uh, in leading man terms, is... Chalabay, is it? Yeah. He he leads uh, the middle section, which is about student protests and ennui, um, has been reported on by uh, Francis McDormand's character, and yeah, I like I, I just I don't I don't I don't get him. I don't get it. I don't think he has the he's able to carry this movie even when he gets to like interact with, you know, Francis McDormand and Christoph Waltz pops up in it. Um Yeah, I, I I'm just not feeling the energy. Like having admittedly like being very taken when I first saw him and called called me by your name and I just don't think feel like he's he's moved on to do anything where I'm just like I need to see a movie when this guy is is the lead. Yeah, this guy being, of course, Timothy Chalamet, um, everyone's favourite internet boyfriend. And he's actually in two of the films I'm about to talk about really briefly. Uh, and I have nothing against the guy. I do find that, like, I, I, I'm, I've seen a lot of people just, like, routinely thirst over him. And I, like, I just find that to be kind of just gauche. And I'm just like, why is this, like, the the narrative? Um, and would it not be really fucking weird if, you know, I was doing that overlay as I do? I'm not trying to do, like, a fucking double standard gender bullshit thing. By all means, enjoy your internet boyfriend, Timothy Chalamet. But I do feel that what comes with it is an incredible overrating of his work. And I think he's fine. Like, he can be good. He can be all right. He's clearly, a, look, he's a beautiful man. Good for him. Uh, I you know I understand that element of it, but I'm as an actor, put that on the record. Well, look, listen. I mean, like, what, what am I going to do here? I'm going to sit here and say he's not a snack, you know. Uh, as I drop my marker to my left, as I'm flustered, um, I just he's yet to show me any acting chops that are really very good. Uh, which brings me to Dune, uh, Den- Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part One. Uh, part two has been confirmed, of course, and I'm glad it has because part one is a two hour and 40 minute trailer for the next one. Um, I went into this with low expectations. I'd say no expectations really beyond finding the trailer not great and also having not read the source material. 
And it's funny because like I just see I, I see people I follow on Letterboxd. I for the last few weeks, all I have seen is four star or four point five star review after four or four point five star review just pop up every single day. I gave it two and a half, and I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> like Mick Pope, good friend of the show, has seen it twice, and um, people seem to love it. I found it very just table setting and you know stacked cast, whatever. I generally like what Denis Villeneuve puts down. I thought this was quite dull. Um, I was never taken by the spectacle, and I just don't think Timothy Chalamet can do it. I mean, he looks the part, for sure, and that's what the character apparently is. It's a young guy, whatever, but, like, I just wasn't compelled. And at the end of this film, uh, one character says to another, this is just the beginning. And I was like, great, glad I sat here for two and a half hours. Uh, It's fine. There's nothing bad about it. I just never got assumed into the world, and I will go see the second one, but... Yeah, didn't really do a lot for me and I did. He he pops up very briefly, though, in a documentary I watched called A Man Named Scott, which is on Amazon as of a couple of days ago. Uh, it's about Kid Cudi, um, an artist who anyone who listens to this, I presume, are regular no popcorn or no encore listeners, rather, and will know that Kid Cudi means an awful lot to me as an artist, as a musician, as a lyricist and as a human being, uh, particularly since Kid Sea Ghost came out and I kind of reappraised his work off the back of that. Uh, a very emotional artist, one who by his own words, makes music for the flawed and the broken. Uh, This documentary, it's like an hour and a half long, and it basically just charts kind of his rise and his struggles. And much like any documentary of this nature, which he's involved in making, it can't not be a vanity project. It can't not be a bit of a hagiography that's in there. But also a lot of candid and uh, honesty is in there as well, which I found very refreshing and quite beautiful. Uh, some good talking heads, Timothy Chalamet being one of them. It's funny because like him popping up, you're like, oh, well, this will definitely get the get the hits, you know. And and he's there and he's like, Cody means so much to me, man. Like sometimes I have to pause his music because it's just so emotional. And it's nice. He actually comes across for the first time that I've seen as like, yeah, I get it. He seems like a cool guy. Um, Kanye's in there briefly, you know, doing some kind of. There's lots of faux profundity in this. The film starts off with Pharrell just going on this bizarre meandering thing about the internet and culture and people not being held down and every time you're like yeah i think i I think i know what you're saying he just goes off on another tangent and it's like well-meaning but ultimately just like kind of nonsensical um kanye is of a similar beat at one stage he's talking about something and he just stops and pauses for about 60 seconds and then goes yeah i think i'll end that thought there and it's like yeah fair (laughs) enough um willow smith comes across like a really cool person she comes across quite unpretentious and grounded and kind of full of light and just Seems like a really cool person. Her brother, Jaden Smith, of course, is in this as well. He's functioning as, like, a, he performs this kind of play thing, which is supposed to reflect Cuddy's struggles, and it's, like, a bit too avant-garde, I thought. It's very stylish, this thing. Presented, like, people come up on screen, they get, like, lots of text, you know, like, and, and all this kind of stuff. And But it is good. I, I thought it was... I, I thought it was very good. I mean, it didn't quite... It didn't quite drill down all the way, and it felt a little bit unfinished. It ends kind of nicely. Cuddy basically, like, says... I mean, like, I don't know how accurate this is, but Cuddy's like, oh, until I came along, like, you know, there was no emotion in hip-hop and rap, and now guys can do that, and, you know, they can present a very vulnerable uh, part of themselves, and, you know, I changed music. And then he goes, you're welcome, and it hits the credits. And I'm like, great ending, don't know how true that is. But you get, like, the likes of Schoolboy Q, who I know you love, and Schoolboy's like, oh, I could never say that. I'm glad he's out there to do it. Lil Yachty has a great line where he says, like, one of the first times Lil Yachty's ever had a great line, when he says, um... I'm really glad that he's him so I can be me. And it's like, yep, that's kind of what Cody is. It's a good documentary, not going to change your life, but definitely worth watching if you've been interested in his music. And lastly, um, real quick, I watched a film called Reminiscence, uh, starring Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson, Tandy Newton, 
uh, and Cliff Curtis, I believe. I literally watched this 24 hours ago. Um, I think it's Cliff Curtis, yeah. It is, yeah. A sci-fi film from the co-creator of Westworld, a TV show I don't like, uh, Lisa Joy, who I believe is, I don't know if they're romantically involved, but certainly creative partners with Jonathan Nolan. And this is Nolan Light to every conceivable element. It's a sci-fi film that sounds feels like rejected DLC for either Bioshock, Cyberpunk 2077, or Deus Ex. It's set in a future in which water has risen and a lot of the world is underwater. So, you know, nice... So so the actual future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nice reminder. Oh, oh, oh no escape in this movie. Uh, it's It sounds like it should be fine. Uh, Hugh Jackman has, like, this device in which people can, like, go into this kind of tank and revisit a memory he like trades in nostalgia you know and of course rebecca ferguson shows up she's the film noir femme fatale he falls in love with her she disappears he tries to find out what happened to her yada 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 it's just really boring it's it's one of those like you know those ones whether it's the poster whether it's the trailer whether it's the first frame of the film when you know that even though tons of money has been put into this thing and it looks great and it's got stars but you just know that there's an inert feeling it's like it's flat it's dead and you know it straight away and you've two hours of it and that's what this was it was just like why fucking bother this is nothing to say there's a horrendous harrison ford-esque blade runner narration which comes in immediately and feels very studio mandated and everyone's trying but it's so boring and i wouldn't bother with it don't bother with it it sucks I will be bothering with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just did. I, I remember I remember seeing a poster for it on the side of a bus during the summer and it was the first time I'd heard of it. And I was mm, like, mm. how does how does this um, this movie, you know, like what looks like an expensive movie? I'm looking at the poster now uh, for anyone else who's seen the poster. It's it's very much Blade Runner, the poster. You know, yeah. you have Hugh Jackman um, wearing a very kind of strong Macintosh coat, similar to the one Deckard wears. Um you know, you have people in the background. It's kind of, it's not so much neon, but, you know, it has that look about it. Um, so I was like, oh, this this kind of looks fascinating. How have I not heard anything about it? And then kind of you, you dig into it a little bit. And yeah, it kind of seems like one of these movies that, I don't know, was it like, I don't know what studio even made it. Was it one of these ones that kind of got made before a studio decided to, was it, was it like a, a Fox one before Disney came along that like snuck in that just wouldn't get made now um but anyway i will be watching it because um my november my november movies uh taking taking a lead from uh i, I mean of course norm's not here so i'm gonna start talking about wrestling um <laughs> <laughs> taking a lead from the great ecw pay-per-view november to remember i'm theming my month about movies that deal with memory and oh, oh reminiscence God. is a perfect one um, <laughs> this is incredible so it's 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 you know, a nice mixture of of uh, Cineplex Fair and like the the loftier art house. So, um, I've only gone. I think I've only watched two so far. I think I mentioned Rashomon earlier. That that got a watch. That's obviously a masterpiece. Um, a rewatch of Christopher Nolan's Memento. Um, easily his best film. Kind of feels pointless saying, "Hey, it's a good film," but it, it's fantastic. And still to come. Fifty First Dates, the Adam Sandler, <laughs> Drew Barrymore, uh, wow, rom com, big extra uh, renter when I worked there. As mentioned, Reminiscence, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is yep. a long time since I've rewatched that. Uh, Dark City, Dark you City. Were, have you got Minority Report in there? I don't. Um, it, it it very much goes to uh, full full art house now. Uh, Tarkovsky's Nostalgia. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Michael Haneke's Cache. Oh, what a film! Uh, last year at Marion Bad and Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, which is like one of these ones if you're on Letterbox that like if you go into like highest rated, always seems to like pop up near the top, but I've never seen. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty. That's, that's pretty solid. I will disagree with you though on one thing. Interstellar is Christopher Nolan's best film, as we well know. So nonetheless, we'll move on to a different film our main film that we're going to discuss this week of course this week this month this episode it's drive here's the trailer if i drive for you you give me a time and a place i give you a five minute window anything happens in that five minutes and i'm yours no matter what i don't sit in while you're running it down i don't carry a gun i drive so you just moved to la no i've been here for a while what do you do? I drive for movies. Is that dangerous? It's only part-time. You put this kid behind the wheel. There's nothing he can't do. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. Ooh, very menacing indeed. It's Drive. And why does it qualify for no popcorn? And what's it all about? Dave Higgins. Um, it qualifies for no popcorn for a number of reasons. Um... If if we're if we're invoking the uh, former kind of band member as uh, as composer, uh, Cliff Martinez was once the the drummer in the Red Hot Chili Peppers before Chad Smith, so that gives it a qualification. But I think kind of what drew us to this movie most is the fact that um, you kind of heard a tiny bit of uh, chromatics tick of the clock there. Johnny Jewel of Chromatics was originally due to score this movie. Um, he'd worked previously before with Nicholas Winding Refn on Bronson they'd, he'd used uh, Glass Candy's digital versicolor in that movie to great effect and he was brought in by Gosling and Refn to score the movie uh, he did a score for the movie and then his score is not in the movie uh, kind of very last minute it got moved to being done by Cliff Martinez um, what is it about? Um, it's about a driver who drives uh, in the <laughs> kind of the neon, the neon yet see the underbelly of Los Angeles. He is a stunt driver by day, getaway driver by night. He doesn't say a lot. He gets involved with some some bad people. Um, and that's kind of, you know, your, your story in a nutshell. Let's, um, yeah, uh, well summed up as always. Uh, you mentioned chromatics, you mentioned Take of the Clock, we heard a bit in the trailer there. Let's hear how this film kind of starts off. I will say that this clip I have, um, I think someone like panned it weird in that like something's in one side of your ear and something's in another, but it should be fine. Have a listen. Down there, Lane Jane boring, just like you asked for, but I dropped in 300 horses on the inside, she is gonna fly. Look like a zombie, kid. You getting any sleep? And offer you some benzedrine, dexedrine, caffeine, nicotine. Oh, you don't smoke. That's right. Better off. There she is. Chevy Impala. Most popular car in the state of California. No one will be looking at you.
Tick of the Clock is one of those tracks that you can't help but just feel like a bit of a badass way you listen to it. It works perfectly. It's wonderful. Um, is this film wonderful, though? I'm curious. This is such a pop culture phenomenon. It's just turned 10 years of age in the last month or so. That's why we picked it to do it at this time of the year, even though we are a bit late to it. Um, I rewatched it for the first time since the cinema back in February. I didn't actually rewatch it ahead of this episode because it's a film I feel like I've seen 25 times, despite only seeing start to finish twice. Um, I mean, this isn't like the biggest box office hit of all time or anything, but it's just subsumed its way into pop culture to such a degree that like you couldn't fucking... You couldn't, like, dial up your internet without seeing the Scorpion jacket or incredible VHS versions of the cover of the film, the amazing soundtrack that I guess we'll be discussing at length on this uh, one in particular. But I am curious, Higgs, uh, can you take me back to your relationship with this film when you first saw it? Were you were you heart-eyes for the whole thing, or what do you think of it? Yeah, so I saw it, I guess, when it was released. I think it was, like, in Ireland, like, October 2011. And I recall it coming out at a time when it really felt like Ryan Gosling was exploding. Because in 2011, if you kind of count in Irish release dates, he had four movies out. Um, so I'm going to try and I'm gonna try and guess a couple of those. Was Crazy Stupid Love one of them? It was. Uh, Gangster Squad? It was not. Oof. Uh, oh, so it must be like Blue Valentine or something. So yeah, Blue, Blue Valentine was kind of out around January. Um, so I, I recall going to see that uh, <laughs> in a very kind of hilarious setting with uh with friend chelsea and her friend stephanie who had just like arrived from toronto with suitcases and we were like you know you know two toronto people of course they want to go see a good their their good boy gosling in a movie and we went to see that movie uh maybe we'll revisit it one day because with grizzly bear score but um yeah just we both felt all felt like we'd been punched repeatedly in the gut uh kind of walked out in silence and it's just like well, that was a very poor decision to start your holiday. Um, so anyway, in terms of going to see Drive, um, I went to see it, I think, on a Tuesday afternoon in the screen cinema, which I missed dearly. Yeah, um, it was a real one. And yeah, just was totally, absolutely captivated. Um, you know, we had a tiny bit of the opening, the cold open there. Um, I watched the cold opening again this morning. I think it's like one of the most enjoyable 10 minutes in cinema it's so so good um everything about it uh the way it's shot the editing the sound editing is amazing i just like love the the kind of the mixture of tick of the clock and you're getting the clippers game which at first just kind of seems like oh this is kind of like you know just adding to kind of background noise the police scanner and the way kind of it all sets up um for like it's it's kind of it's payoff is absolutely fantastic so yeah i was i was very much in on the movie i was very much part of the uh the crowd who were going wild for for drive at the time i actually immediately after seeing drive walked up the road to the savoy and went to see crazy stupid love so it was a big a big gosling day for for young david higgins back in 2011 the other movie by the way is a movie that has been forgotten but has a very very good poster you recall the Ides of March, the Clooney Gosling movie? Uh, I watched that for the first and time the, this year. I think it's not great. And yeah, it's not fold. great at all. Yeah, the Time magazine fold. Um, I think that was written by Bo Willeman, who went on to do House, House of Cards. Cards. So, yeah, yeah. Again, a ridiculously stacked cast, an utterly forgettable film. Clooney directed that one, I think, possibly? I think um, he did. And yeah, it's got like... Clooney got, has directed a lot of clunkers, so that does sound about right. I think he did, yeah. It's Clooney, it's Gosling, it's Evan Rachel Wood and a bunch of others, and it, it ain't great. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess the background of this movie, I mean, in terms of like 
is this like a perfect pop culture storm? I, it, it's weird. I, I saw it in Cineworld um, after, I think, a shift at Hot Press. And, you know, I remember like watching it in the, in, in the movie theater and like when the bursts of violence occurred, in particular when he puts a fucking, you know, like a light tube through someone's neck or whatever it is, um, people were laughing. Like, I think because of the surrealness of it, it's like this has been this kind of tempered art house thing up to this point, and now we're seeing ultraviolence. Um, I don't know if I'd seen anything by Nicholas Winding Refn before this film. Had you not seen Bronson at that stage? I still have, I still have never seen Bronson, would you believe? Oh, is that okay. bad of me? Um, no, I'm not going to criticize him for not having seen a Nicholas Winding Refn movie, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a good one. <laughs> Okay, um, but yeah, I I remember like thinking I I love and it was the same when I rewatched it in February. I love the first hour of this film. Spoilers, by the way, we're going to be spoiling this film that I assume everyone has seen. But for me, and um, here's the spoiler right now: when Oscar Isaac uh, bleeds out on the fucking ground, I think the film falls apart. Um, like falls apart might be a bit harsh, but I think the first hour is magic, and then I think it just gets a little bit kind of point by point afterwards. I but I find myself being like, why don't I love this? Like, why 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 am I not? This is five stars. Like, what am I missing? It has so much great things in it. I just think it kind of ironically enough runs out of road or something. But I I felt that way leaving the cinema in twenty eleven, and I feel this way ten years later. Now, don't get me wrong. Even putting the clips together for this episode, I'm looking at my vinyl collection to my right here, and I'm like, gotta get that drive vinyl, like, because <laughs> I have to. The music is so fucking good. Why do you think this took off the way it did, in the in the way that it did? Um, I think it's a lot to do with um, a lot of elements to it. Um, the score being a major one, because it kind of heralded like a different way of doing scores that I guess people... You know, Cliff Martinez had done work not dissimilar to this for Steven Soderbergh, but like, they're Steven Soderbergh films. They're like a little bit more esoteric you know they're not as kind of you know they don't have maybe maybe they weren't like he wasn't for sorry for example martinez wasn't doing like the oceans movies he was doing the kind of the otter soderbergh movies that um well sorry not to cut you off but was contagion the same month as this or like certainly around the same probably, time probably yeah, yeah. In, in, not not yeah in around that time so which again like is a very good score and it's kind of of a, of a partner to to drive um, in terms of being electronic. But so you had the score, you had like, we've had Night Call, like the Kavinsky song. It's just like, it's an immediate hit, like as much as you could kind of have a hit in like an incredibly violent uh, movie like this. It kind of felt like when people saw Drive, combining all the elements of it, like you had like a young cast who were kind of all kind of starting to blow up a bit so you had obviously Gosling who'd you know for many people it's just like The Notebook and then he'd made some indie movies but this was just like casting him as a leading man um you had Carrie Mulligan again like putting her front and center Oscar Isaac I know it's a supporting role but like you had three people just like on the precipice of being like gigantic and then you also like you fill out the supporting cast with like the people from Breaking Bad and Mad Men and to a lesser extent Sons of Anarchy it's just like it's a very, very watchable film in that sense. Um, and then just like visually, it's very, very strong. Like it's confident. Uh, it's bold to like have like hot neon pink all over your movie, particularly dealing with the things that it deals with. And not not to like, it's just kind of like a cool movie in, in a very, very, very basic way. And I think that for a lot of people, it was just like, oh, we haven't seen a filmmaker like this 
this seems like you know it could be this generation's Tarantino like we could be getting it on the ground floor of something here not sure it quite went that way but let's have not at all <laughs> <laughs> let's have another listen to another kind of musical drop from this movie uh, one that of course is quite uh, as they say iconic hey do you want to see something hasn't gotten old has it i mean no. in, in, in 10 years it hasn't gotten old and also can i ask you so like in that moment when you hear that music are you like are you in the car with ryan gosling are you are you desperate to go for a drive with this taciturn uh mysterious man who's capable of extreme violence by the way oh 100 i'm just sitting in the passenger seat watching him him drive with his his uh, his leather driving gloves on <laughs> his his watch strapped to the wheel just uh hard eyes <laughs> It's a lot of that. Um, but yeah, so how do you find the chemistry between him and Carrie Mulligan in this movie? Because like, she is literally angelic in this picture. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I think it's absolutely fantastic. And it's um, considering that like, you know, going on like, I think I mentioned Crazy Stupid Love, that he go on to make like a couple of movies with Emma Stone. I think he has great chemistry with them, with her. Um, I would have loved to see him do something uh again with Carrie uh, with Carrie Mulligan. Um yeah, they're 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 amazing in that like obviously he's saying next to nothing and she kind of kinda of has to like drag things out of him, but like just in terms of the presence of the two of them is is phenomenal. Yeah, so how do you feel about that script decision? I guess, I know they did it on Only God Forgives, and I assume they did it on this one. There's been talk of, you know, we went through the script and we just, like, drew big black lines through a lot of my dialogue, and, you know, we got rid of all the unnecessary stuff. I mean, like, does that work for you with this, or did you want more of Gosling kind of telling you things? Because it is, it's to a point. I mean, like, there are times when, like, there are long stretches of nothing being said and just, like, Gosling looking, like, absolutely beautiful <laughs> just like the two of them just looking at each other um and just like looking down at the floor kind of like like a, a more kind of intense Clooney kind of thing of like the you know the the head tilt and whatever but there are times when you're like okay i need you guys to say something as a matter of fact let's have uh let's have them chatting or their version of chatting in irene who is the character that carrie mulligan plays in her apartment here's them having what what qualifies in this film as a meet cute so you just moved to la no i've been here for a while you're just new here? Mm-hmm. That's Benicio's father. Where is he? He's in prison. Oh. What do you do? I drive. Like a limo drive? No, like for movies? Oh. You mean all the car chases and stuff? Yeah. 
that dangerous? It's only part-time. Mostly I work at a garage. Where? Receded Boulevard. to the water. Say bye. So yeah, I mean, listen, if you look at 2011 Ryan Gosling, you don't got to say much. But I have to ask you, is this character captivating or is it all in the performance? What do you think of the character on the page? Um, I think so, because just like even like the, the, the central can see the character being a stunt driver, which is a, an inherently very interesting thing that like every day you go to work and could potentially die. Um, also, people can enjoy a movie. Um and then you get to put it up against the fact that like he's also a wheelman, which is an, another like incredibly uh, interesting role. So um, yeah, I don't I don't need a lot from the character in that sense, and I think Gosling gives a lot to it. I think it's it's interesting to kind of consider just to go back kind of into the production history of it that like it was originally going to be a huge Ackman film, um, directed by. Neil Marshall, who made like The Descent and Dog Soldiers and some episodes of Game of Thrones. And what do you he, think they thought of this when they saw it? Because no way. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's no, I don't think there's anything on the page because like the, you know, it's 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 based on a it's based on a novel by James Salins that is like a very kind of, you know, meat and potatoes crime thriller. Uh, it, you know, it's Spartan enough. Um, but I don't think it would have had any of the flourishes that 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 Refn brings to it. Um, it basically seems like they took the the script from Hossein Amini and were just like, as you said, like going through it, like don't need this, don't need this, don't need this, um, breaking it down to like its bare bones. And I think that works because, like for me, this movie is just a vibe. Um, and there's a, there's enough dialogue like retained in, you know, other characters. Um, like in Cranston's character, Albert Brooks, um, Ron Perlman to kind of to to fill it out. Like if if everyone was behaving the way Driver and Irene are together, you know that that would be an issue. But like it it does the the gang and the, the mob stuff well enough with them that kind of you can easily get away with it. Particularly when you have a, a performance as strong as Gosling's. Yeah, I want to get to those side characters in a few minutes because they do a lot of heavy lifting. And I think everyone generally is very well cast in this, top to bottom. Um, one such person, of course, being Oscar Isaac. So I think it's funny because you mentioned we mentioned Ridley Scott earlier and you were like, oh, well, The Last Duel, in your opinion, is Ridley Scott's best film in decades. And I'm like, as far back as Robin Hood, I think is where you're going with that. Yeah, the amazing <laughs> Robin Hood, which uh, I guess when I saw that film, which is a complete nothing... Oscar Isaac's in that movie, but he didn't really stand out too much. But I guess he kind of did to some degree. But I, I didn't quite know who Oscar Isaac was at this point. And even in Drive, I remember kind of being like, oh, yeah, that was Oscar Isaac, of course. Like, now I know him. But, like, at the time, he was just this kind of guy. Um, but he shows up in this movie. He like he, he, It's a small role to a degree, but it's a very important one. He is, of course, Irene's husband. He's in prison for an unnamed crime, but clearly a violent one. And his arrival back into their lives just kind of puts the wedge between the burgeoning relationship between Driver and Irene. And I think it's done quite well. Um, Let's take a listen. This will incorporate also some further music, which is handy for us. Uh, Here is Driver 
or sorry, here is Standard Gabrielle. What a name, by the way. Oscar Isaac's character. Back at his homecoming party. And we get some more music here. You know, we're here celebrating, but it's, it's a shameful thing. What I did. And I have a lot of making up to do to everyone. Second chances are rare, right? And that's worth celebrating, right? So I want to make a toast to that lady right there. Thanks for staying. I love you, Rini. Salud. Uh, under your spell by desire there it's just it just all hits doesn't it it just all works it, it's <laughs> yeah i was just about to say like refin does not miss with any needle drop like there's only five in the film but like every single one of them is just perfect yeah it's magic um uh, yeah any one of these if you had just one of them you'd be like oh my god but it's 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 an embarrassment to riches great scene there uh particularly as the camera pushes in on carrie mulligan who is saying it all with her face she's clearly staying in this relationship for the sake of their kid and she clearly doesn't want to be there she also clearly has love for this guy as well at the same time so it is complex uh shortly after that i think you have a meeting between driver and standard and it's kind of laced with a bit of tension driver's been getting close to their son uh, and obviously Irene standard recognizes the threat but then some very bad men come along beat the shit out of them and next thing you know there's a botched robbery and then Oscar Isaac is that's a wrap on Oscar Isaac everybody um <laughs> he is tremendous though isn't he I mean like like what like like a movie star we talk about Gosling of course and Mulligan but like yeah as you say like this trio together absolute electricity and that's one of the reasons why I'm like look it's the story you had to get rid of him but I really do think that his presence is really missing from the back half of the movie yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, the thing I love about him, and particularly like in his early roles, is that like he does so much with so little or, you know, he, he pops into a movie like this and I won't say that he steals it, but like he borderline gets close to getting there because I think the, everyone else is like so good. Uh, I think we, we regularly invoke the Bourne legacy where he, like he has a scene and it's like, why why can't this be the movie? Why can't this be his franchise? Why can't we just give him the keys to this and um yeah he he's remarkable and he's like he's kind of such a kind of certainly in his early his early movies i think just due to um varying levels of beard growth and whether he'd shaved his head he was just like an utter chameleon, chameleon as well yeah, where like yeah. you'd see him in this and um obviously we've done inside lou and davis before and like he's got a very much a look there you know he's two faces of january i don't know if you've seen that one the patricia highsmith adaptation um Again, like he's kind of this like weird sociopath in that, but again, looks completely different because it's like the beard's gone, so he's got like the you know the, the the chiseled jaw, and then something like Ex Machina where it's like you know shaved head, beard, glasses, and it's just like always, always different looking, always doing different things, but like always just like you just can't stop watching him. Do you want to take a moment while we're on this kind of gushing role to mention the greatest coach in cinema history? <laughs> Well, it's got some it's got some contenders now. <laughs> uh, by the way, we're not talking about the scorpion jacket, which is maybe one of the worst coats in cinema history. We should probably have a corner where we talk about. <laughs> well, hang on. I will say the scorpion jacket, much like Brad Pitt in Fight Club, when he's just wearing like horrific Hawaiian shirts and like tracksuit bottoms, doesn't matter. Like Gosling pulls this off, Pitt pulls that off. If you look like that, you can wear a fucking trash bag, and it's fine. But no, we were referring to a very different coat from a very different film. Yeah, we're talking about. Uh... 
a most violent year. It was a movie made a couple of years later. Uh, a very elegant, excellently well made movie with him and Jessica Chastain. He wears a a very nice camel, very nice camel coat with a with roll necks. It's a, it's a winter movie. It's cold in New York. He's he's working in the oil business. He's trying to get home heating for people. Um, he looks immaculate in it. It was one of those movies where I was like, yeah, this. He, that 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 coat looks real good, so I had to go out and get myself a coat just like it, um, which is a regular thing I'm finding now when I watch movies. That I was going to uh, say, do you want to pivot to your latest acquisition? Well, it's not my acquisition. <laughs> well, I feel like it will be. I do have eyes on. It. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I, I I watched um, Chaos Walking, and this is. Uh, like a movie I didn't know existed until I was uh, having a scan on uh, your Amazon Prime account and I was like oh there's a movie with like Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley and I was like oh Doug Lyman made it and it came out this year <laughs> like similar to Reminiscence I was like how have I not heard anything about this particularly considering like how fervent um, Tom Holland fandom is online that it's just like um, you know surely this, this would have I would have seen something about it so anyway uh, I was like I'll throw it on just for kind of you know, seeing movies that came out this year. Uh, it's really dull, really terrible. It's a sci-fi movie um, set on like an off-world where uh, Tom Holland lives with a kind of a colony of men uh, where all the women have been killed by these humanoid aliens. But on this planet, everyone's internal in, internal thoughts are, are heard and it's called your noise. So you have this like really annoying thing where like you're just in Tom Holland's head for the entire movie. Um, but... Let's let's talk sartorial. Um, <laughs> the the head of the town, I think it's called Prentice Town, uh, is Mads Mikkelsen, who's wearing like an incredible, incredible fur coat. Uh, you know, it's it's very kind of Western set. Um, so I, I was watching this movie. Sent a sent a a message into our into our WhatsApp group, just being like, "This is entering the pantheons of like I need this coat movie." <laughs> um, and then as luck would have it my my girlfriend was visiting family in Canada and she came home and she's like oh like my my grandmother has has given me this coat <laughs> she's insisted that I take this coat that she's had for over 50 years and I was like oh okay cool I was like give us a look at it turns out it is a actual vintage fur coat bought 50 years ago so um don't come at me Peter um <laughs> a a musk rat coat um so I was like well I'm could I, could I try it on? Immediately tried it on. I was like, I'm I'm feeling mad here. I found a, I found a fedora, popped that on, and you know, I was like, I kind of, <laughs> I feel like I could run. I could be the mayor of a town in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, so that's coat talk. Um, that's coat talk for this episode. I enjoyed that. Hell of an image. Well, let's let's talk the jacket. Considering um, I have real issues with the jacket. All right, take it away. Hit, hit me. Tell me all these issues. I, want I understand. Know. I understand that this movie is very much you know, style over substance. And I, I don't mean that as a slight, like I really like this film. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's style to the maximum and it 100% works. The jacket makes no sense in the context of the character. It's like, so this character is is quiet, is in no way ostentatious, is basically trying to be a ghost in Los Angeles and very good at doing that. And if you kind of compare what he wears throughout the movie like you know he, he basically just wears like Henley's a kind of a, you know a denim jacket boots very workman like while he has this coat that is you know so over the top 
if you saw someone walking down the street, you'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, that guy in a coat. I remember that coat. If you don't want to be seen, that coat is just like, he might as well be wearing a neon sign over his head. I think there's like a very interesting thing in, in the clip we played earlier where um, Cranston's character is like, you know, I got you the most humdrum, boring, I think it's like a Chevy Impala. Plain Jane, like, I think he calls it. Plain yeah. Jane, but it's got like real oomph under the hood. Uh, I I have a car, I literally don't know how to describe cars. I'm very much in the Larry David as a car salesman. <laughs> if someone tried to get me to talk about horsepower or whatever. Um, and that, the Chevy Impala is what driver should be. Like he's, you know, very kind of kind of bland in, in how he presents himself. But like everything is underneath the charisma, the the ability, the kind of savant level driving ability. So he just wears this coat and... You know, if I'm Carrie Mulligan's character and I see that's a red, that's a red flag, that coat. Oh, sorry. Stamping if, someone's head uh, in in an elevator is not a red flag. But this coat, however, is. Well, the, I mean, he'd been wearing the coat for quite some time before he did that. <laughs> <laughs> My, so, as I said, a red flag. Fair enough. My take on it is you, we've all got that one friend. Maybe I'm that one friend where like, you know, they have one part of their wardrobe that they think rules and no one's going to say it to them and they just think it's cool and it's not. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is Do you one... Can you think what that is in your wardrobe if you, if you have something? Uh, you, you, you tend to be like me. You tend to just wear black. I just wear all black. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I probably don't have anything like that, but I'm sure I did. I mean, I, back in the day, I wore a fucking like work shirt that was basically like Taz, like WWF Taz. Like, you know, I thought it was the coolest thing ever, but I was an idiot. So it Did wasn't. it say Taz? It had like a the number 13 thing, but it had a big thing on the back of it, like a big, like oh, over the, t- it, it looked like a, like what a darts player would wear. Um, oh, okay. But I was, I was young. I was a teenager, you know. Like, I mean, okay, like we're, we're, we're confessing. I did when I was a teenager to, and again, Norma leaves and here we are talking about wrestling. I had a Billy Gunn t-shirt that said Mr. Ass on it with the like electric pink lips. <laughs> That's not good. I had an evolution t-shirt that said, I, I think it said something like made, paid and laid. And again, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just a wrestling fan teenager. We all make mistakes. It's fine. Some of those, some of those t-shirts are all right. Don't worry about it. Cactus Jack. It's a, it's a classic. Anyway, look, I, I, I take your point. And you're right. And I know where you're coming out with the style over substance thing. This film is style over substance, but it's not necessarily a knock. It's more... To me, it is more of a knock because, like, I do think it kind of loses a thread a little bit. Tight ninety, though, isn't it? Like, it's a short enough movie, which is fucking absolutely, which is great. Now, listen, let's get into Albert Brooks' corner because he's the he's the villain of this movie. Uh, and Albert Brooks, you know, if if you don't know who he is, you'll certainly know his voice. Uh, let's have a listen to him, essentially, kind of laying down a little bit of a, 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 a little bit of intimidation. Here we go. Did Shannon ever tell you how we met? I used to produce movies in the 80s, kind of like action films, sexy stuff. One critic called them European. I thought they were shit. Anyway, he arranged all the cars for me, did all the stunts. I liked them. I liked having him around, even though he overcharged the shit out of me. His next business venture, he got involved with some of Nino's friends. They didn't go for the overcharging bit. They broke his pelvis. He's never had a lot of luck. What a voice, by the way. Just amazing. And people, of course, will know that voice as Hank Scorpio in The Simpsons, in one of the great Simpsons episodes. He only moved twice. And, of course, Nemo from Finding Nemo. So... This Sorry, is uh, Marlon, Nemo's father. I do apologize. I, 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 I knew I'd get that wrong because it's not one of my favorites. It's not one of my favorite Pixar's. I think I've only ever seen it once. But he has that kind of... Um, 
very warm, fuzzy voice, you know, very kind of like he's a, known for being a comedic actor. Uh, I think casting him in this film was uh, maybe akin to casting uh, Werner Herzog as the villain in Jack Reacher. I mean, one of those kind of like, really, this is what we're doing? Um, do you think, I, I'm asking a rhetorical question here, but do you think it works? What do you think of the character yeah, of, Bernie, he's, of, of, he's, of Big Bad Bernie Rhodes? He's he's phenomenal uh like i think it is his introduction where he's like introduced to driver where you know he's just coming off the track and he's like oh sorry my hands are dirty and he's like so are my kid um even the way he's framed just kind of like looking down um he's so good it's it's an absolutely inspired pick um particularly because he kind of could have gone the route where and it, it it wouldn't have been a bad choice to you know have ron perlman elevate him to be the big bad and he would have been perfectly fine in that role um, but flipping it to kind of make um, someone like Albert Brooks, who, you know, my, my go-to, is, I guess, aside from The Simpsons, is like broadcast news where he's like this incredibly lovable, funny character. Um, to have him be the big bad and kind of have someone with the kind of physical presence of Ron Perlman um, be the kind of like neurotic, uh, you know, neurotic crook who's like, doesn't feel like he gets enough respect in the world is yeah it's just like an absolute masterstroke let's actually have a listen to uh, like yeah let's give ron perlman his flowers as well here is a pivotal sequence in the film in which bernie who's uh, albert brooks and nino played by ron perlman his partner in crime have an argument and make a big decision that will affect the rest of the movie this is something off to the side bernie i didn't want to involve you in this well i'm involved now i'm gonna tell you something anybody anybody finds out you stole from the family we're both dead what fucking family the family who still calls me a fucking kike to my face yeah i'm 59 years old bernie they still pinch my cheek like i'm some fucking kid bam the money always flows up izzy you know that why this driver's got to go, Bernie. He's got to go. And your pal Shannon. I mean, these are the only two guys who can time me to this robbery. So yeah, apologies for the racial epithet there uh, uttered by Ron Perlman. I will say that uh, I think Ron Perlman's amazing in this. Uh, and they're a great pair. I think you get just enough of them, just enough of their relationship to kind of really believe it. Uh, and this also leads into Albert Brooks murdering a man in one of the most vicious murders you will ever see on screen. And boy, it's tough to watch, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, very full on. I think I think the first time he'd ever murdered someone on screen, which kind of makes a lot of sense when you make movies like Broadcast News, not a lot of bloodletting in the, that one. Um, yeah, it is. It's really, really, really shocking. And is it? I, I kind of have the chronology sometimes wrong. Is is it the first... No, it's not the first real, like, shock of violence. That's the post the robbery, isn't it? Yeah, the one I was mentioning earlier on where, yeah, like, yeah. Gosling... But sorry, it wasn't a light tube. It's a shower fucking rod, isn't it? Like, he yeah. Put, like, he puts through a henchman. And, and, of course, before that, you also get um, Christina Hendricks' head exploding. That does happen. Is, yeah, this is a violent uh, movie. Quite a shock. I think that's the first thing that, like... Yeah, when it was in the cinema the first time we saw it, you were just like, Jesus Christ. Because up until then, nothing, you know, even though you know it's kind of, things are not going to go well. Yeah, Oscar um, Isaac's getting like, uh, Oscar Isaac getting like two fucking bullets into, like through his chest is pretty brutal as well. Because it's just kind of like, whoa, Jesus. Um, yeah. But yeah, it does, it hits the old ultraviolence button pretty hard uh, here and there. Um, but it doesn't feel gratuitous, does it? I mean, it's just reffing being reffing, I suppose. Yeah, it is. And I think even, um, 
two of the two of the kind of the later big kills when Nino and Bernie get killed, they're kind of done in very elegant, uh, dramatic ways. You kind of have uh, Nino being drowned in the Pacific Ocean, where you know there's a lighthouse giving you the light, and it's you know it's not it's not full on. You know you don't see him like gurgling or anything like that. And then uh, when Bernie's killed, it's all done in shadows, um, which is kind of like a nice contrast because you kind of felt like if it kept going that route that it would 100% be too much particularly after things that have come before it uh i feel like every scene he's in brooks is amazing but like in that scene that you heard there when when ron perlman's character says shannon's gotta go your pal shannon that's brian cranston's character and brooks plays that brilliantly he has a momentary kind of look on his face of i really don't want to do that um but obviously is resigned to the fact that they have to and then he does murder brian cranston he does it in a fucking uh it's he reaches out his hand to like shake his hand and then like slashes his wrist open with a, a, like an antique razor or something and he's like there's no pain there's no pain it's fine it's done it's done and it's just so casually brutal but also again you use the word elegant there he gives him a painless death or his version of a painless death and it's simultaneously like tells you about this guy's code of honor but it's also fucking brutal <laughs> so 100%. Like, jesus christ um but yeah again like i mean like it's all the stakes are there all the stakes are sufficiently raised i still can't give you a, i know you, did, you didn't ask i think i'm asking the question of myself i still can't fully decide why i don't think this is like incredible i mean i gave it a three star rating last time maybe that was just way too low um is is this a modern classic or or, or is there too much noise about it what do you think um yeah i go it is it is a modern classic. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do find it odd that like you can't get on board with it because like you are certainly a man who likes his ref and I think you're you're one of the few people who's seen Too Old to Die Young. Uh, who's, <laughs> saw the whole do you, thing. Do you, do you get some sort of certificate when you complete that? Yeah, um, you get you, you get a notification from Amazon. I, I've actually considered maybe re-watching that and I'm like, what am I doing? Um, I do think Only God Forgives is a five-star film. I think it's great. Uh, that is admittedly a little part of me being the contrarian. Uh, I'll happily admit that, but I do think it's a fabulous. Film. It is very, very good. I rewatched it just before I rewatched Drive, and a fascinating movie to make post Drive. Um, kind of, if you want to, you know, you you make a movie that's like a cultural landmark, like Drive, where Refn and Gosling. Even though, as we kind of mentioned at the start, like it didn't, it didn't run away with the box office. It did really well because it wasn't an expensive movie to make, but. You know, they kind of basically could have done whatever they wanted, you kind of feel, after this. And there was talk of Refn being offered, like, Spectre before. Jesus. Um, and, you know, did the Equalizer reboot and doing a, a version of Logan's run. And then he was like, nah, me and Ryan are going to go to to Thailand and, you know, just get down in the shit. <laughs> and it's like, you, you thought he'd know dialogue last time? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> challenge accepted. Does, yeah, the Logan's run thing, did they fall out? I think they like there, there was talk that they fell out because they they were supposed to be like this was their passion project. Then there was talk it was off. Then there was talk it was on. Then there was talk it's off again forever. Then there's talk that he's doing Maniac Cop, and it's like I don't know. I think the general like I imagine I don't have, I don't have the numbers, but like Only God Forgive didn't do good money, and like it probably scared a lot of studio executives. Um, we can talk a little bit, I suppose, about studio executives poking in on a movie because. There's 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 suggestion that that's the reason that Jewel was kind of taken off this project. But yeah, just in terms of, you know, Refn made two very difficult movies after after Drive that like that have the same visual flair, but like don't have the kind of 
popcorn enjoyment or like you know they don't have the you know the the kind of just simple joys of a car chase or you know a love story they're very much descents into hell um and so hang on, you haven't watched too old to die young have you which i mean uh, no i, I uh, won't be watching it i know you're, you're referring to the neon demon there as well which i think is excellent uh, and, and i don't think you're a fan of it um a very literal o- film <laughs> too old to die young for anyone who doesn't know because I'd, I'd be surprised if people did know because there was no marketing campaign for this it landed on amazon about a year and a half ago it's a i think it's a 10 episode series um and most of the episodes are like north of an hour long it stars miles teller jenna malone john hawks and it's it, it's basically like if you don't like his style if you find drive and only god forgives to be too slow, uh, too drenched in neon, too violent, too nothing, too dialogue-free. Stay the fuck away from this TV show, because that's what this is. It's the ultimate in him just going full-on, indulging all of his excesses, some of which work, some of which don't. Um, I found it very mesmerizing. I found it very compelling. I also found it very empty. And ultimately, you know, I can understand why Amazon were like, oh, we're very happy with this, but yeah, there won't be a season two. Um, I think it's a fascinating artifact. Some of it looks unbelievable. It is also extremely nasty um and for the sake of it at times you know and i you know it's it's not really one that you could like casually recommend to anybody but you know look listen they gave him money he made his thing and it looks like it, it looks like they were like yeah do whatever you want and he did it and they're like how the fuck do we sell this we can't let's just upload it on a friday and never mention it again and that's what it is uh it's his it's him very clearly trying to do twin peaks the return as well which obviously he doesn't have quite the scope or the unique genius to do that but at the same time i mean kind of a recommend but approach with caution um but look you've teed it up perfectly let's talk about johnny jewel let's talk about this soundtrack what happened so as kind of mentioned at the start um having worked with Refn before he was approached to do the score um and by all accounts was was doing the score but it was his first time doing a full musical score like lots of Lots of his stuff from Glass Candy and from Chromatics had been used in other movies before, but in terms of just like starting from scratch, this was very, very new for Jill. Um, and kind of, you know, knowing what we know about Johnny Jewel and his kind of his perfectionism, his his kind of habits of, you know, scrapping a project, um, you know, destroying it. Um, we're still waiting for Dear Tommy I wonder, and like this is kind of me speculating a little bit and kind of only reading through the lines of what you think or what might have happened is that some of the executives started to get cold feet. I don't know, like where, you know, they weren't happy what he was doing or I don't know, does he take notes? Um, But very, very, very late into it, like five weeks before um, Drive was due to premiere at Cannes, kind of Cliff Martinez was parachuted in and kind of given... I think a bit of what Jules had done, but certainly the five needle drops in it and be like, this is the vibe, this is the feeling in the movie. This you know, is the girl. What, yeah, what what can you do? Um, and then he turned it around um, and then kind of, yeah, has the score. So there is a there is a drive score out there um, by Johnny Jill, one of the many, 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 many unreleased uh, projects that he has. And we may never hear it. There is a, that year actually, um, he had a project called Symmetry. Uh, they brought out a, a record called uh, Themes for an Imaginary Film. 
that people have speculated is the Drive soundtrack. Um, Jewel himself has kind of said that it's not. It's like two hours long. Um, and, you know, the movie, as we said, is like a tight 90. Um, but he has said that there's like there's pieces of the Drive score in there. Um, I've listened to this imagery album a lot and kind of been like, listen to it and be like trying to pick things out and be like, is this, could this have been it? Could this have been it? Um, the year after Drive, the Chromatics album Kill for Love came out and maybe it's just Chromatics having incredibly cinematic music, but like you could definitely cherry pick some tracks out of there and be like, put this in Drive and it would, you know, fit like a glove. Um, but well, we hear a piece of symmetry, like I, I'm basing, I'm basing solely this guesswork on the title <laughs> tracks um, and if they involve streetscapes or driving uh, so I think we have a track called Behind the Wheel Like it's 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 almost kind of of a of a, a similar piece to Tick of the Clock, where it's like you just have like this really nice synthesizer, and then like the drum kicks in, and it's like, oh yeah, here we go, very <laughs> propulsive. Yeah, you could again, you could slot this in in anywhere. Um, uh, maybe we could just hear one other piece. So um, again, this is this is symmetry, but it it did eventually it became a chromatic song. Um, I think the track that, f- that closes Kill for Love, The River, um, but in this guise is called Streets of Fire. So it, it does, it has Root Rattler's vocals on it, which again, when you kind of consider the, um, you know, Desire and College tracks on this, like would perfectly fit in as well. You can totally see um, Gosling driving through the night in LA with this playing in the background. But I won't cry another tear For all the pain we saw last year The river thirsts for those who fear And I'm still here Waiting for you say like maybe they thought it was too literal but then like you think about under your spell real hero it is pretty literal with the lyrics as it is so there's no subtext in this movie which is totally <laughs> fine and again like that's not that's not a slant against so i think yeah it would have worked you know beautifully in it and you could totally yeah as you see imagine gosling and uh carrie mulligan like looking longly at each other while this plays it would be perfect um, what do you think of the Cliff Martinez score? Because I know you were saying that you're like, I need this vinyl. But is you saying I need this vinyl being like, for you, like, I listen to the tracks, the the, the songs more than the actual score itself. 
Yeah, no, that's very much what I would be picking it up for, I think. Um, I will say, I, yeah, I have so much more familiarity with the tracks than the score. I mean, which isn't to suggest that the score is in any way inadequate or anything, but I I would struggle right now thinking about it. Like, like it's not coming, like, all that comes into my head are the needle drops, but they're so strong, and it's kind of one of those ones where it's like, well, yeah, every hipster dickhead with a record player has to have this. Do you have it? <laughs> I don't. Uh, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, like, I, think the, I think the score is good, but it definitely... Um, it it seems like something that was a five week job, when, and I only mean that in the context of other things that Cliff Martinez. Yeah, has done. gun like, for I hire. Think I've, like yeah. I think I brought up the like the Nick before. His score for that is like absolutely incredible, um, and it feels like there's like far more, far much more time kind of devoted to that. And so, do you feel? Also, I feel like it's it's a bit more kind of his. While here, he was very much kind of at the last minute given given a brief to be like. Can you can you kind of do this? Can you do a Johnny Jewel? You what, know, kind what, of do what I, he's doing. Can I ask you? Are you in the Are you in the Justice for Johnny Jewel Drive score camp? What do you think? I think it would be you know, and maybe this is where we start the Twitter campaign. Uh, release the Jewel cut, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, with with movies kind of getting you know recut and rescored, I would love to see. I would like. I mean, I'd love to hear the score just straight up I'd want, I'd want to hear what he did for it but yeah it would be kind of cool to see the movie uh, done with that he, he does he says I'll just read a, read a quote from Jill actually kind of when he was talking about it um, when he was talking about kind of getting getting not kicked off it, but being replaced he said uh, that's Hollywood all the cliches are there and they're even worse than you already think I know it's not a nice thing to say, but my score was superior. It was the director's choice, Ryan's choice, but in movie production, there's a money side and a creative side and they don't always meet in the middle. So yeah, it kind of seems like it was pushed by the producers. Um, but again, as I said, um, Johnny Jewell's history is that like, he definitely doesn't work to deadlines. So, you know, if if they were saying that they had to bring someone in five weeks out, was this thing even fully complete? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely an artist with a complicated legacy, particularly perhaps even more so in the wake of the rather mysterious chromatic split that was announced this year. But speaking of legacy, as we move to wrap up this episode, what drives legacy in 2021, do you think? Um, I think like it'll it'll kind of just be considered like a cultural touchstone. I think, as you, as you said, like you've seen it twice, but you feel like you've seen it 25 times. It's just like it was you know, 2011, a big time for Tumblr. And, you know, it kind of like got disseminated and became a thing there and was all over Twitter. It was probably like very early in the in the kind of memeability of movies. And yeah, I just think it'll it'll survive because of the soundtrack um, more than anything. Because I think if, if Refn had, say, had gone on to do a Spectre or gone on to do... I don't know necessarily the equalizer, but maybe Logan's run. If he'd gone on and being like, this is my kind of uh, my jumping off point to being like the big director, like I mentioned Tarantino earlier, like he like just a flat out rejection of that kind of career and that kind of arc. Um, I think similarly with Gosling, he went through like a weird period after this where he made this and then kind of again, kind of sort of rejected leading man status, wanted to be a director for a while, made a really bad directorial debut that Johnny Jewel ended up scoring is it really um, bad because it, it was surfacing on I've never seen it and I, I lost River and I was I, I was considering yeah. watching it recently but is it is it really bad it's it's like pound shop David Lynch kind of shot in a in a reference style like it's it's kind of 
gorgeous and like grotesque looking at the same time like in terms of its lighting and its coloring um the score is good like there's i think it's like the the title track love um, theme by Chromatics, love theme from which is, great. River, is yeah, amazing it's magnificent. um but not a lot there and then you know Gosling kind of came back around and was a bit more of a leading man going into La La Land and Blade Runner. But I think if, if the two of them had kind of used that to be like, okay, we're now like a, a power duo, we're going to make like bigger and bigger movies. Um, I think that would have been interesting. But yeah, for what it is, I think it's kind of a cool movie, but it's the score and the, particularly the, the, the soundtrack that remains. Um, I think I will watch Lost River and I think I will revisit Drive soon again and it has been an absolute pleasure doing so on this episode um, and I want to thank our sonic architect David Tapley go stream Tandem Felix uh, for all his hard work and I will of course pick up that vinyl that, uh, that Drive vinyl but we will move on uh, to our next episode which hopefully will be coming soon now usually in advance uh, we kind of decide amongst ourselves you know like it's a transparent process what we will be doing next but um, I guess a combination of just like how kind of flat out we were before this episode and i i messaged you uh, like yesterday and i was like do we have a film lined up and you're like no so i was like all right and then i like decided this morning um and i decided and i kind of was like i went through our we've we got a massive fucking excel spreadsheet of stuff uh, which higgs has put together he's got all kinds of different you know like it, it's like docs biopics and all kinds of fictional stuff whatever so uh i found one in there that i was like oh yeah of course how have we not done this and it's a film i haven't seen for 20 years um <laughs> so without further ado the film we will be doing next on no popcorn and dave higgins is going to learn this in real time is this you know what the sickest thing is about you little man you fantasize about being somebody else singing somebody else's songs oh maybe if i get really lucky i'll get to grow up and listen to air supply and wear jack boots like you what's wrong with air supply we're tired of just being a cover band we started this because we love playing dragon tunes you're gone man am i being kicked out of the group that i started let's go Hello. This is Kurt Cuddy. I play in a band called Steel Dragon. Ricky, you know your English accent is almost as lame as your guitar playing? Well, I can't do much about the accent. What do you suggest to do about my playing? Who is this? We're auditioning for a new lead singer. The good Lord has given you a hell of a voice. Do you want the gig then? You know, I'm just a regular guy who grew up with the posters of these guys on my walls. And now I'm one of them! Yeah, it's Rockstar. Starring Good Mark, <laughs> starring Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> rock star. You put it in the doc, man. I did put it in the doc. I think like when we originally started this, you mentioned that somebody was like, "You got to do rock star one day," and I was like, "I think it was God. Nilo." I could be wrong. <laughs> I think it might have been Nilo. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, that's it." I haven't seen that since the VHS era. I remember, or maybe even, maybe even it was in the the crest of the DVD wave back in two thousand and one. Uh, regular guy Mark Wahlberg becomes a rock star, and that becomes. And like so, the, the 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 again, like the poster is him, like walking down the street. Looks like he's like hitching, but he he very much looks like a Eddie Vedder. Yeah, it's an all time Eddie Vedder, all time terrible poster, by the way. Yeah, like it's which, shocking. Which doesn't tell you what this movie is like. It doesn't tell you that he's in like a hair metal band called Blood Pollution. Is that Blood Pollution and Steel Dragon? Steel Dragon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Timothy Oliphant, I believe, is in Blood Pollution. You got uh, Dominic West was the voice you heard there of the. I can't do anything about the accent, mate. Uh, I have to say. I having previously having had no impetus to ever revisit this film, I'm suddenly very excited to go back to this thing. <laughs> I think it's are we be... 
another, another it's, yeah, I suppose we're doing the 20 year anniversary of uh, of Rockstar. We've done the 10 year anniversary of Drive. Yeah, <laughs> a similar cultural footprint, I think you'll find. Uh, 100%. Uh, <laughs> everyone was rushing out to, I guess, dress like blood pollution and, you know, get, get, get the vinyl, the yeah. Seal Dragon vinyl. Uh, who else? In the Jennifer Anderson's in this movie. Uh, you've also got uh, Jason Bonham, Zach Wilde. You've got some real, real life rock stars. You've got Timothy Spall. I think it's going to be. I I I wonder if we'll have Norma back in time. I feel like she won't want to do this one. <laughs> and, she may quit the pod. And who could blame her? Um, but that's coming up next. Rockstar is next. But for now, uh, Dave Higgins, thank you so much for all of your knowledge and all of your drive-based heroics on this episode. Been a pleasure. And uh, thank you again to David Tapley, and thank you to you, listener. It's patreoncom noencore if you want to go the extra mile and help support the show. But for now, we will play out with a bit of a a, a bit of that famous. College and Electric Youth track that you heard earlier on, because uh, for the real heroes that we are. My name is Dave Hanrady. This has been a popcorn. There have been a popcorn and drive safe. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.